I love Ecclesiastes. I love Ecclesiastes 3, and it's very familiar, I think, to more people than we would imagine because of the song that incorporates this uh, poem in the first eight verses of chapter 3. The lyrics to the bird song, turn, turn, turn. This song is exactly what you would read out of Ecclesiastes 3 with the words turn, turn, turn repeated after each line. So he added one word, three of the same word, multiple times, and then he added six other words at the very end of the song. But the rest of that is intact, Ecclesiastes 6, or Ecclesiastes 3. When Peter Seeger added these six words, it was after verse 9, that's, or verse 8 that says, a time for war, a time for peace, and he adds, I swear it's not too late. So when he first composed this tune and lyrics, it was in the late 50s, uh, in 1962, the Limelighters performed this. If you go on YouTube and look it up, it was pretty rough. It was, uh, it was not going to stand the test of time, it seems. Uh, but by 1965, it was recorded by the Birds, and it rose to the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Could you imagine eight verses of the Holy Bible being on the top of the 100 Billboard hits this week? This week, it would have to put out of place uh, Drake and Cardi B and Bruno Mars and insert Ecclesiastes 3. I think we should do that, but who am I? To, I don't have a vote on that uh, committee here. The Bible in common culture heard, thought about, sung even. Why do you think that these verses resonate so keenly back in 1965? Why does the theme resonate for us so keenly today? I think there's many different reasons, but something that's fascinating about this is the, is the subject of time. And we're going to read later on that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. So I think human beings are fascinated with time, whether it's a, a music about time, maybe it's time travel or superheroes that have powers over time. Time is something that fascinates us something that compels us and interests us. This poem in the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3 is beautifully describes human existence from birth to death and, and everything in between. The, the word time is used 28 times of course, across this section. There are 14 pairs of contrasting words which is twice the number seven, which in the Bible you'll see is this number of uh, perfection or of completeness. And so I think what the preacher is trying to portray for us is in this list of contrasting themes, we have the whole kit and caboodle, the whole of our human existence laid out before us in its fullness and completeness from birth to death. The prose section in verses 9 to 22 that comes after it this follows that bit of poetry, and it gives us the commentary that we need to understand the under-the-sun perspective of the poem from an over-the-sun perspective description of life. So follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. 
a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that the people fear before Him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks that which has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would send forth your spirit, that you would make clear to us what you are saying in your word. We are convinced that your word is true, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, that it is able to even drill down into the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. And Lord, we know that it's truth, and your Son has prayed to sanctify us by the truth. So Lord, do that work in us. Help us to grow in Christ-likeness as we understand and apply your Word. Help us not to be hearers only, but doers as well. We need your strength. We need the power of the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to work in us so that our lives may glorify you. We pray that you would do this 
for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple Christmases ago, I got in back into building plastic models when I was given a Christmas gift of a plastic model. Now, this plastic model was an ATST, not to be confused with an ATAT, which was on Hoth in The Empire Strikes Back, not the ATST, which Chewbacca commandeered on Endor, helping the Ewoks. No, glazed faces. What is he talking about? It was a model of a Star Wars spacey ship thing. And it was cool because the models today, they didn't require glue, and yet they were so precise and exact to snap together. I remembered as a kid, I was part of the Revel Model Club. Every month, I would get in the mail a box that would have a new model that I would build. When the USS Wisconsin came, I got that box open, I pulled out the manual, I mean pages and pages of how to put together this model, and I made the mistake on one of those early models of getting these sheets of plastic pieces and just taking all the pieces off the sheets and putting them all into the box and realizing only later there's a number next to each of those parts and I have no idea now how they all go together except by whatever the picture looks like in microscopic writing. So the next I think was probably the uh, F-15 Strike Eagle. That was an awesome plane. And then a B-1 bomber that I remember hanging by fishing wire from a spot above my bed. But the best, like the ultimate model that I remember spending the most time putting, on, putting together was my 70 Boss 302 Mustang. It was orange with black racing stripes that I painted down the side and on the hoods. And, and it was intricate. You open up the hood and that motor, you had to put together the motor and all the pieces and parts. And I, and I got to admit, there were probably some parts under the transmission or maybe in the undercarriage that I didn't get exactly right. But with a little toothpick, a little bit of uh, this plastic cement, I painstakingly put it all together. I like that stuff. I like doing projects that I'm in control of, I put together. When I'm done, there's the results. Maybe you've had that experience with Legos and your children. You, you put stuff together and you know that somewhere in the design of that, you didn't follow the instructions on page 15AC exactly right, but nobody can really tell the difference. We get away with stuff like that when we're in charge of building. When we look at the doctrine of God's sovereignty and His lordship over time and the universe, we shouldn't be confused to think that somehow we're the lords over our lives, that we're the model builders. Primarily, God is the one that's putting together our life as the model. And God entrusts to us certain pieces, and He gives us the manual for putting those pieces in place. But as we look at this exhaustive list in this poem of how many things that, that God has given a time and a season for, many of those things are completely out of our control, and we can't make it right. And we can't screw it up even if we tried, because they're in God's hands. And so I want us to see that 
God himself is the Lord of time. And that as we come to understand this beautiful poetry that describes his complete sovereignty, we're going to look to that following section to give us some insights, some over-the-sun perspective to go along with the preacher's under-the-sun perspective or under-heaven perspective so that we can navigate here and now and how we can work together with God as the master builder and the Lord over time and not against him or try to do his job for him. Let's see first that the completely sovereign God is the the God of Ecclesiastes 3. God is not kind of sovereign. I think sometimes we slip into this idea that we want to maybe safeguard God's uh, name by saying there are certain things that God allows but that he doesn't ordain. And I think that's, there's a lot of well-meaning people in that, and I, I remember listening to uh, a counselor that I was supervising talking about something very difficult that came into the life of one of her counselees, uh, abuse, as a matter of fact. And she said that God allowed this for a purpose in her life. And, and I could agree with that sentiment, and I can understand why she phrased it that way. But I think the whole of the Bible, as we read it in its entirety, we see that God doesn't simply allow things to happen, but that He ordains every single thing to happen. Not so that He's the author of sin, though. And He uses secondary causes and the free and responsible choices that we make to accomplish those goals, but that God doesn't let some ends or some things not be filled out. You know, he doesn't do a fill-in-the-blank for your life, like a Mad Libs, where you have to just fill in a few things and then it makes sense or doesn't make sense. No, God has written our story for us, and it's a beautiful thing that he's done. I won't take time to read the entire program, uh, uh, poem again, but consider how Walter Kaiser sums up this section. He says, the plan of God encompasses everything from being born to the day of our death. God appoints both our birthday and the day of our funeral. All life enfolds under the appointment of providence. Now, this poem doesn't explain the whole doctrine of God's sovereignty that's explained in the rest of the Bible. But if you see the, the very nature of His um, sovereignty over life and death, birth and death, From a very starting point, you didn't get to decide when you were born, right? I know our first daughter, Emily, in 1997, they um, gave us a due date based on ultrasounds, the best that they knew, but she was going way past her due date. Not way past, but a few days. And so the doctor said, we can go in and do this thing called inducing birth. And I thought, okay, that means you go in, they give you a medicine, and you come back with a baby. Well, I think they were pretty new at it back in 1997. They hadn't quite perfected it because we went in and you had to go in at midnight because the insurance and then all of the hassle. It turned out she was on this medication for hours and hours, no baby. So we went home. We came back a few days later. We did the same thing. Hours and hours on this medication so that this baby would be born And she was stubborn. I mean, she's always been stubborn, I think, after that, but I hope she's not listening to this. But she wasn't ready to come. God wasn't ready to send her. 
And, you know, for a little perspective on that, I remember um, just hearing other people and uh, on the floor, you're in your room and you hear other babies crying around and, and all, and it's beautiful to hear, but we didn't get to go home with our baby. And uh, one of the nurses, when we were packing up, said, you know, you'll get to come back in a few days and have the baby, but there's some people that aren't going home with their baby. To be clear, God's not just in charge of the beginning of life. He's in charge of when a baby dies, when an elderly parent dies. He writes that whole story, and he has a purpose in it, and he has a plan for it that's so often mysterious to us. He doesn't give us all the answers and the whys and the wherefores, but he is completely sovereign in in all that he does. Pastor Tony's been working through the book of Ephesians, and and a key verse in Ephesians 1, verse 11, describes God's sovereignty and how thoroughgoing it truly is. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And, you know, the translation of that fancy Greek word is all. It's, there's nothing uh, unclear about it. Everything that happens, God is in charge. I love how our shorter catechism says in question seven, what are the decrees of God? God? The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The whole thing, everything that comes to pass, God has foreordained that. Again, this is a mystery. I don't claim to understand it all, but the Bible teaches this whatever comes to pass control, complete sovereignty. Question 11 in our Shorter Catechism asks, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. I love that because it describes God's writing the story and it unfolding as wise, powerful. It's perfect. He does all that He does in the most wise way. Now, when we get to the point of verse 9 in this this description of how to look at God's complete sovereignty. Once we've established His complete sovereignty and not just His kind of sovereignty, we're put at a crossroads. And I think verse 9 starts us off on one direction of the crossroad. We can either wonder why or we can wonder wow. And this first branch of the road begins in verse 9. It says, what gain has the worker from his toil? It's as if the worker hears this poem, and God's in charge of this and that and that and this and that, and well, what, what does it matter? Maybe I should just give up. Maybe if, this, if God's in control of everything, why, why should I even care? And then when things do happen and God is in control, Well, why did he do it that way? Why is this true? Why isn't this my case? And when we start down this pathway, we start to become this armchair quarterback that gets to accuse God of not doing it exactly the right way. Or say, well, God, it would be better if 
this is the way it played out. And where does that put us? That puts us above God. And he doesn't want any competition. He's God and we're not. He's the Lord of our times and seasons, not us. And so when you find yourself asking yourself the wonder why questions, like why did that person get a promotion and not me? Why are their kids so well behaved? Why did I get that cancer diagnosis? Why don't my parents get along? Why are they so popular or so good at sports or an instrument or having an amazing voice and I don't? Why don't I get good grades? Why doesn't my baby sleep through the night? Why can't I sleep through the night? Why do I have to deal with a parent with dementia? Why is my child not walking with the Lord? Why is she so successful and beautiful and godly? Why do we struggle financially and they don't? Why don't I have close friends? Listen, if God's in charge of it all, then he's responsible. And I can say, God, it, I don't like it that way. So you hear in our wonder why direction this envy at times or covetousness, this murmuring or grumbling and complaining that we so often, it's so easy for us to slip into. But the preacher presents another way to see life in light of God's complete sovereignty. It's more of a wonder, wow. Look at verse 10 through 11 and then verse 14. Verse 10 says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity into man's heart. It's so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And then verse 14 says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. See, that fear, remember the beginning of wisdom? That fear, which is an awe, a reverence, an amazement at God and his character, that's a hugely different perspective on the sovereignty of God over our lives, the happenings that go on in our lives. If we understand God in his most holy, wise, and powerful goodness is directing everything in amazing and in a, as a gift to his children. God has given the children of man these times. We shouldn't take that for granted. I worked for a year in a nursing home after graduating from college, and I was doing activities there in the nursing home. I'd go to different rooms and, and get people to come out for uh, bingo or Bible study or you name it. And I remember going into the room of this one woman who had been paralyzed half of her body. She was a heavyset woman who, who, when you came into her room and she was on the edge of her bed, I'd ask, how you doing this morning, Mary? She said, I'm blessed of the Lord. I'm in my right mind, and I'm ready to go. She recognized, even though she had setbacks, she had things that she could say, why did you do this, God? Why did you do that, God? Why am I in a nursing home? Why did I have a stroke? Instead, she decided to focus on the gift that God has given her of another day of life and the blessings that she did have. I'm in my right mind. I'm ready to go for the day. We also see that God has made everything beautiful, verse 10, or verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
It's a hard word to translate. Another way to, to translate it might be he's made everything appropriate or fitting. It's as if the pieces fit together uh, better than some of the models that I made. Or better yet, think of a, of a beautiful art tapestry that's hanging on a wall. And if you look at that, it's, it's beautiful, it fits together, but if you were to look at the backside of it and you see all the strings and all the knots and all the bizarre arrangement of strings, you'd never guess that this is actually, it does fit together and it's beautiful. But that's the difference between an above the sun view and a below the sun view, okay, under the sun view. We also see from an eternal perspective, not just a temporal perspective, here it says, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Yes, we, we have this inborn longing for something bigger and greater than ourselves. I think that eternal perspective, that's, that's part of our fascination with time, but we're also qualified in how much we can learn. We can't find out what God has done from the beginning of, to the end. He doesn't promise us answers to all of our why questions. It's kind of, you sometimes are not going to get the answers, oftentimes are not going to get the answers that you want to, as to the whys. But He has put eternity in our hearts. And also, we see that whatever God plans endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God's written the story don't expect him to add something or take anything apart uh, from it so that people fear before him. Uh, that should be our perspective on all things, on whatever comes to pass. The good, the bad, the ugly. Janie, my wife, is teaching a Bible study on the life of Joseph. And you know the life of Joseph has quite a few downturns. Having brothers that sell you to slave traders, not a good day for, for Joseph, right? And then things get worse with false accusations of sexual abuse towards Potiphar's wife, and then he ends up in prison. All these things happen in his life, but at the end of his life, what is he able to say? He's able to look back when his brothers come in, who had been so terrible to them, he could say, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. To see a deeper purpose, it's important for us that crossroads to, to, to decide, I'm going to stand in wonder and awe and worship you for what you're doing, even if I don't even totally understand it, even if it seems hard. She used in this Bible study uh, the story of Corey Tenboom who was a Christian evangelist who hid Jews during the Holocaust. She was in prison because of it. When Corey and her sister Betsy entered one of the filthy prisons infested with fleas and both were starving, they cried out to the Lord to help them. As they lay side by side on a bunk with several other women, 1 Thessalonians 5 came to Betsy, give thanks in all circumstances. She turned to Corey and shared these words. Corey in turn asked, what on earth they could give thanks for. Betsy said that they were actually able to be together in prison and that their Bible miraculously had not been confiscated. We can be thankful for that. Then Betsy prayed, and thank you, Lord, for the fleas. Corey told her sister she could never give thanks for the fleas, 
But Betsy reminds her that it's God's will to give thanks in all circumstances. So while lying in their flea and lice-infested straw beds, they gave thanks for the fleas. After some time, they noticed that the soldiers rarely came into the barracks where they slept. Betsy and Corey did not know why, but it allowed them to share the light of Jesus with other women for hours at a time without being disturbed. One day, Betsy asked the supervisor to come into the barracks because she needed help. Betsy told Corey the supervisor wouldn't step through the door, neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. This place is crawling with fleas. Corey wrote, My mind rushed back to the first hour in this place. I remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could not see nor uh, have a use for. Hours of ministering, changing lives, and offering hope in such a dismal time all all came because of the presence of fleas. If the fleas had not been there, none of that would have happened. So what is the hard thing in your life right now? What's What's the flea in your life right now that you're having a hard time understanding? Is God in control of this? Does God have a purpose and plan for this? What could it possibly be? And when you find that, if He reveals that to you, praise Him. Wonder, wow. God, you had a, a much deeper plan in store for me than I ever could have realized. Give me faith to see that. As we do that, we can enjoy the pleasures that God does give us. And then we can also rest in His plan. If, if you look at uh, verse 12, we've established with God completely sovereign over all things. And His encouragements for us not to always wonder why, but to wonder wow, we're then ready to decide how are we going to live out our lives and what will it look like? Verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them to do than to joyfully, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man, to be joyful, to do good. It sounds like what the first catechism question in the shorter catechism asked, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to do what God calls us to, and to enjoy Him in that. This is the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows of life that we're all going to face. We can face it with joy. We can face it with purpose. We can face this with the over-the-sun perspective that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not on the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lift our heads so that we can enjoy the here and now to what is significant and weighty what is eternal. We not only enjoy those pleasures, but we can rest in God's plan. Look at verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what's been driven away. Look, this is saying God's got it figured out. That which is the present, 
it's as certain as if it was the past because God's already got it figured out. Rest in that. And what about that which is to be, the future? Well, it already has been. To God, these things are settled. We get into such a tizzy sometimes about what's going to happen next, how things are going to turn out, what's, and we can rest in the fact that God has it covered. He's in control. We can relax. Don't keep trying to do God's job for Him. We can find contentment and peace and rest when we have this over-the-sun perspective. Again, Paul has this perspective in Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at length you have, received your, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and in hunger, abundance and need. Paul understood it. It wasn't his circumstances that were going to determine whether he was going to have joy. It wasn't his circumstances that was going to determine whether he could rest and have peace. Contentment was going to come regardless because his perspective on what was going on was changed. God's in control. God's taking care of this. And that's why this verse that often gets torn out of context, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, is He gives you the strength to find contentment in whatever state you're in. Maybe you're low right now. Maybe you're high right now. Can you find contentment in the Lord? Finally, Paul wraps up this section, verses 16 to 22, pointing us to trust God's timing for justice. Here's a problem that he introduces in verse 16. It's an under-the-sun problem. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, in the place of justice, even there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there is wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. Do you see that today? Do you see where there should be justice, there is injustice? Where there should be righteousness, there is wickedness. You can't turn on the TV, check your news feed, look at your phone without seeing there's wickedness in places that just should not be. And look, you don't even have to turn on any news or any device to know in your own life and in your own heart, there's wickedness in me that just shouldn't be. The thing that I want to do, I don't end up doing. And the very thing I say I don't want to do, that I end up doing. The Romans 7 condition that we are in is a struggle. But when we put into perspective that God's going to take care of judging that, God's going to set the scales of justice right, sometimes He does that in our life, and sometimes He gives some of us responsibilities to help bring justice, but more often than not, it's going to be settled in eternity, and we're going to have to have patience to wait on the Lord for that justice. But you know, the preacher then heaps on some more when it seems dark, when there's wickedness, when there should be justice. In verse 18, he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, God's testing them that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. 
Oh, thank you, preacher. I'm just a beast. What happens to the children of man? What happens to beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. They all go to one place. They all are from the dust, and to the dust they return. I've spent time at gravesides right next door, speaking those very words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The beginning of our lives, when we're born, to when we die. Written on those tombstones, the date of birth and the date that they die. But the same happens to the rich, to the poor, to the influential, to the commoner. They end up in the grave to dust. That's humbling. But I think it also sets us in a better perspective to wait on the Lord. The sad reality of going to the grave and returning to dust is what all creatures face. And there are some over-the-sun realities, though, that can help us to face even the greatest enemy, that is death, with an over-the-sun perspective. An over-the-sun perspective on evil and wickedness when it shows up, I believe, comes in the life of Jesus Christ, that the perfect Son of God left eternity, left His, his home in heaven, and He came and lived among a sinful people like us. He came into this wicked world, but He Himself was righteous and perfect. And although He was righteous and perfect, He came up against people that wanted to kill Him, people that lied about Him, people that misused Him and mistreated Him, and this sham of a trial that they thought was justice was the greatest injustice that was ever perpetrated in all of humanity. But there was a purpose in that because he would go to the cross as a righteous man to suffer for the unrighteous. That God would make him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God's setting the balances right. And he, Jesus, suffered that injustice so that he could make us righteous. The way that we understand God's sovereignty is so important, complete sovereignty. The fact is, when we get that settled, we have to choose, as God calls us, to choose to wonder and awe at who he is and what he's doing. And don't get caught up in that game of the, of the whys and the whatabouts. And when we do so, we can take pleasure in God. We can rest in him. We can trust Him for how things are going to turn out. We can let justice and let righteousness be in His hands. There's a poem of sorts in the book of Romans. I think that corresponds to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And Paul says in Romans 8.28 that all things that we know for those who love God All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's in charge of our salvation from beginning to end. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who then shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made times and seasons for us, that everything that we experience in life has been written by you in your plan. There is time to break down, time to build up. There's time for us to weep and to laugh. There's time for us to mourn and a time to dance. Lord, our lives are filled with so many activities and thoughts and Yet you have bordered our times with birth and death. But Lord Jesus, you have defeated death. And we have life, new life in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would live with an eternal perspective on time. That you are the Lord of time. And that we can trust you. Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.